0: Custom, the modern testing podcast. Join your hosts, Alan. God! now I'm mad
1: <laughs> and Brent. I am mindless, agile robot, I must iterate, God <laughs> as we talk about software
0: engineering, software quality, leadership, and whatever else comes to mind. Now, on with the show.
1: Good morning, Brent. Good morning, Alan. It's been
0: a while since we've been together been a month plus reunited i'm not, I'm not gonna <laughs> sing on you that's, that's a bad idea bad 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 idea.
1: how you been yeah now i got that song in my head i know you do how you been i'll tell you how you been
0: yeah you're wearing one shoe today tell me a story
1: i, I broke my foot last sunday
0: and how bad did the other guy get it
1: <laughs> uh the the brick is just fine So the story, I tell people the punchline, is is I broke my foot by sitting. And what happened is I was sitting cross-legged on my uh, front patio. Uh, Unbeknownst to me, I had put my foot to sleep, and it was time for me to get up to go do something. And in the process of getting up and walking, I had failed to notice... That my foot was paralyzed, right? The, the tingling hadn't started to make it a clear sign that, oh, there's something, problem. So I started walking, failed, lost balance, uh, attempted to adjust my balance by shifting my foot sideways straight on an edge of a brick, which broke. Uh, I, I don't know if you've ever seen an x-ray of a foot, but your, your foot, when you look at an x-ray, the bones look very much like a hand where the little tips of them end up being your toes. And doesn't work very well on a podcast.
0: Brent Brent's pointing to his hand right now.
1: But I essentially broke this knuckle. So you can think of it as as um the bone as it ex- extends into the big part or the big bone on your foot, the pinky toe bone reaches into a knuckle and it's that knuckle I broke. So you're a doofus I am It made a very Concrete noise (laughs) I remember in mid-flight I heard the noise And I said uh, Very quickly Oh my god That's going to be a problem But first I need to make sure I do not fall over (laughs) Uh, Because after I hit that brick I lost my balance again And started tilting the other way And almost landed in a bunch of um, Bushes Uh, I successfully blocked that fall. My son asks, uh, hey, why don't you just put your hand out and and just stop the fall? And I said, oh, because I had my phone in my hand and I was also trying to protect my phone. So it is... You
0: are an idiot on so many levels. I'm not sure which one to make fun of the most.
1: So first off, when you are... Uh, in a situation like that, it is all muscle memory. There's no conscious thought.
0: No, I would have. I would have superhero <laughs> rolled out of it. All right then. But I'm just a, overall. I your, mean,
1: your muscle memory. I mean, I as uh, I think I've told you before, I mean, I'm a black belt in Taekwondo. I've done superhero rolls multiple times.
0: Yeah, and how did those help you in this situation? It did not. Gotta protect my phone. <laughs> Crack.
1: And the the I guess on on that front, I have I have destroyed many a brick with with uh, in karate with with hands and feet, but this time the brick won. So this was brick revenge. It might have been.
0: And I just just a uh, quick question: Do you just have bricks randomly laying around your yard?
1: No, this was uh, edging. You can imagine, yeah, 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 sidewalk, and I hit it that.
0: Master of coordination, ladies and gentlemen, Brian Jensen.
1: Yeah. A.B. test. How long? Where uh, the empathy so, rolls. So
0: at least you don't have like a big old cast on. You have like a foot. Uh, what's it called? A, a, not even a boot. You have a, you have a wrapper around your foot.
1: This is. How long do you wear that? Uh, another three to seven weeks.
0: Okay. What do you do when you go to put a shoe back on and uh, your shoes are worn unevenly?
1: Buy new shoes.
0: <laughs> no, you break the other foot to even it out. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that
1: that does not happen. I don't have a cast I would on. Li-
0: I would like the three to put odds
1: on that. Yeah. Right? I'll, Given I'll... the
0: story you just told.
1: Given the time, uh, you know, depending on the timeline, like ever in my life, I won't take that bet. But, yeah. And the bone is not castable. The, that particular yeah. break is not castable. So that's the reason why. So what this... This thing I'm wearing now, what it does is it adds support to my foot uh, i I can I have crutches out in my car I don't need them per se at least not yet uh, I can walk as long as I put the pressure on the inside of my foot not the outside where the brake is
0: so really the way to fix your foot is the same thing as the root cause of breaking your foot you should sit more all right on with i don't know where i'm gonna go here
1: yeah welcome to episode 104
0: so we have a guest today don't we brent yes yes we have all the way from london england uh author of an upcoming book called leading quality ron cummings john ron welcome to the ab testing podcast
2: Hello, it's so it's so lovely to be here. You guys are like the funniest pair talking all the time. So um, yeah, I'm excited about today.
0: I'm I kind of feel sorry for you because we're not that funny.
1: No, we've been accused of this before.
0: I know it's (laughs) weird. Uh, There is it reminds me uh, first tangent of the day. I listened to this podcast called Tech Talk, y'all, which is interesting because it's a good way for me to catch up on the pop culture of tech. But these Guys describe themselves as a tech comedy podcast, but they don't tell any jokes. They're not funny. All they do is make a few funny voices once in a while and act excited. So compared to them, we are funny. There you go. So yeah, this is, no, is, this, is this a funny testing relative? A testing and, and comedy and podcast? You,
1: only, you, you, you keep the bar very low. Yes.
0: All right. Back, <laughs> back to our guest. Uh, we are, I'm excited to have you. I have read a preview of uh, Ron's book and I have a bunch of questions out in front of me. Uh, but first of all, just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Ron, and and uh, what you've been up to and what you do and what kind of led you to writing this book.
2: Yeah, so um, I am a, a co-founder of a, a crowdsourcing company. Um, I've been working with my, my co-founder, a guy called Oasis for about 11 years now. And we originally weren't from the the tech or the the, the testing world. We were actually in the process of building a search engine for beauty products. And we got backed by our our investors to build that. And as we were going about this process of building a search engine, oh, my goodness, QA and just dealing with quality was a nightmare. And um, I remember we, we went back to our investor one day and said, look, I know finding the right beauty product is a problem but i mean i think that the testing could be a bigger one and uh that's how we, we got into the space and um you know fast forward five years we now work with some of the with the coolest tech companies in the world which is super fun and and what that did is it gave us this opportunity to understand how do some of the top companies in the world like your facebook you google your etsy and all these guys how do they how do they test? How do they look at tests? And how does that differ from what we see from other companies? And so we kept getting asked this question by people, you know, what should my QA strategy be? And we we originally thought that we could we could work that out and write a book on it in about six months. Little did we know it, it took us on a two and a half year journey of, of basically just meeting lots of people, finding out, you know, the truth behind what really happens in companies. And this led us to, to complete a book, which is uh, this summer called Leading Quality, which really, the, the summary, if I was to say to someone, is really that we in the testing space need to ensure that we elevate our conversation and are providing as much value to the business by focusing on what's happening for our customers. And the QA and, and quality and test teams, there are many ways to do that, which is the kind of things that we end up talking about.
0: Yeah, I really like, there's a a quote in the book, which you just uh, talked all the way around. I'm going to read, which is, as we came to the end of the book, we realized that there was a much deeper question than what should my QA strategy be? The question was, how can I better lead quality inside my company? Which aligns a lot with, uh, we have these modern testing principles, of course, moderntesting.org, check them out. (laughs) And our fourth principle is we care deeply about the quality culture of the team and coach lead. And nurture this team towards a more mature quality. Uh, the culture.
1: thing I like is how he just said he basically said principle one in his synopsis of the book.
0: Yes, which is our, our priority is improving the business. And that's <laughs> yeah. that that's prevalent a lot. That's uh I was as I was reading through your book, I was kind of oh, okay, that, that aligns with that principle. That aligns with that principle. So congratulations on on agreeing with us.
2: So no, I I feel privileged <laughs> to, to I feel privileged. Have been on the same thought pattern.
1: Yeah, I was going to say um, you said you thought you were going to pound out this book in six months, and I'm like, in this particular community, I'm not certain you could accurately define testing in six months.
2: Oh man, you know what? <laughs> let me tell you. Let me tell you what really happened. Right? Yeah. We wrote the first version of the book, and um, we gave it to a couple of people, and they were like. No, because one thing that, that you probably know about the testing community is we love debate and arguing and, and the accuracy of everything that that's said we test every idea to its empty degree. so the yes. first version of the book basically got destroyed um, and then we wrote it again and once again, the level of our uh, questioning and justifying that had to happen before we could get to a releasable state was um was emotional and character building I'd like to say <laughs> <laughs> that which doesn't kill you
1: right Ron uh, exactly so I guess the first question I I didn't I didn't make uh the short list of the the pre-read <laughs> um <laughs> uh,
0: I, I i actually was was that was on purpose i wanted i wanted brent to come in cold and kind of hear all this for the first time
1: no so we call it yeah. ab testing and we tell people it's because of alan and brent but uh you know a lot of the times it becomes clear and clear it's the a team and the b team wow the, <laughs> yeah uh anyway before we continue, I, Alan has, uh, I'm standing here in front of him, he has a long list of questions he wants to ask. Uh, but the I, very first question is... There are
0: potential questions is, that I may ask.
1: Is sum up, when you say leading quality, can you sum up the definition of quality in that case?
2: You know, I feel like every time I talk to people, that's the first question that they want to ask. So what do you mean by quality, you know? Um, my continual answer is thank you for asking a loaded question. Um, <laughs> we, it depends on how long you would like to continue the debate for. Um, but really, you know, I, I think that the term and the word quality can be confusing, right? Because we, we all get it, right? It's important. Everyone says they care about it. But it has quite a nebulous definition of of itself. And when when I think about it, I always say there's there's two facts that I guess everyone can agree on. Fact number one is that quality is subjective, which means it's determined by whoever using it at that point in time, which is obviously why the idea of making sure we're building things that customers care about is so important. And then the second thing is that it's relative, right? The, The idea of what quality is for you and I can change over time. I often think back to Yester years when uh, I used to I used to sit and wait for things to a uh, page to load on dial-up, and you know that was that was fine. You know I could wait ten minutes. It was perfectly perfectly legit. However, if that happened now, my perception is if things are taking ten minutes to load, I I am probably tearing my hair out. And if you see me, you realise I don't have much of that. So it, it's interesting how not only is it subjective, but it changes over time. and And so I I often default myself to a Michael Bolton definition, which is quality is value to some person at some time who matters. And then every time I say that, people are like, well, you know, but Michael didn't actually set that. He actually did it as an expansion of Jerry's. And and this is why I think the book expanded and doubled in size, because you have to qualify everything that you write before you explain it to anyone in the testing space. Uh,
1: Yeah, so the problem with, and Alan and I know this quite well. The problem of doing anything that targets that community, you got to expect the testing community to test. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the issue. Sure. Yeah, sure,
0: Speaking of community, you uh, you yeah. quote Malcolm Gladwell in the book, and you say, if you want, there's a Gladwell quote. If you want to bring a fundamental change in people's belief and behavior, you need to create a community around them where these new beliefs mm. can be practiced and expressed and nurtured. So tell me about your thoughts on community and how they lead, how they help you with leading a quality culture.
2: Well, to, to rewind on that, I think one of the things that is incredibly important when you're thinking about being a leader of quality is that we have to be good at influence as leaders. And Yes, we're when, nodding, we're, we're nodding our heads loudly. Good. Because, because there's like the people from the sales background that love selling. And then oftentimes there's people from a technical background who are like, I don't sell. That's not my thing. There's a thought that to sell is like uh, not as good because sometimes it's a little bit more fluffy. It's not as accurate. And I, I, I truly believe that, it, that that thinking will limit um, people in the, in the quality and in the, in the testing space in order to make the change they want to make happen inside their company. Because Daniel Pink has this book to sell as human, and yes, I think he, he pointed out we're we're, that
0: we're huge Dan
2: Pink fans here on the EB Testament. Oh yes, good, good. Because you know he, he did this whole this whole um, study where he was like, well, it turns out that if you look at it, the majority of your life is selling something to someone, whether that's your kid, your partner, your wife, your boss, and so we all naturally sell, but sometimes we don't think we should. And so, coming back to your question of you know. How do I believe that the community can, can help us as we inside our, inside our companies for, for leading and shaping quality? It's really that if you are the only person in your company trying to make that change, it's going to be tough. You need other people around you, or whether that is your your peers, your boss, people in the in, below you in your team. You're going to need to start influencing and persuading other people inside your organization to... Um, to to almost think in the same way as you. But where I find people often go wrong, and this is kind of what we found when we were were talking to different people, is that they believe that everyone else cares about the things that they care about. So when I hear um, people say, oh, you know, the, the management team aren't listening to me when I'm explaining this thing around quality, I ask them what they explain. And the thing that always, well, it doesn't surprise me, but the thing that irks me, I guess, is that, often what they describe has nothing to do with what management teams care about. They're not talking in the context of how it sits from a revenue perspective or the potential uh, monetary savings. They might talk about things like risk mitigation, which is something we talk about in, in, in the testing quality space. But on the spectrum of what's pressing for that executive, you need to make sure that you are attuning and saying things in the light that they care about. And so this whole idea of, of utilizing community inside your company so to make the changes you want to change, I think we always have to look at ourselves as leaders to work out how are we conveying the message and what I like to call the, the quality narrative inside our company so that we can help make that change happen. And, and sometimes I find that a blocker to change inside a company can be the existing narrative that is, that, that is there. If you're inside a company right now where you know there's, there's what we call a poor ownership narrative, so people believe that it's just the testing team that should own quality, you've got to have trouble trying to get everyone to do, to, to do stuff around quality. In order to get that change where everyone is involved in quality and is thinking about quality, there's going to need to be a narrative inside your business that, hey, ownership is part of everybody's responsibility. Everyone has a, pl- a, a part to play in making sure we have a good quality product. And so coming back to the whole Martin Gladwell quote, it was really just trying to encapsulate that when we are trying to make influence happen inside our companies, we have to make sure that we are involving multiple people and we have to also look at the narratives and the stories that are being told inside our company and work out how to adjust in favor to get people thinking about quality. Yeah,
1: um, I have... No, so that, that whole discussion you just had just reminded me of all kinds of things. I've said similar things in the past, right? The, the one thing that I will call out is in order to influence, in order to lead, you have to have followers. And, and I find that this is, the single, <laughs> this is the single most important thing people forget. Leadership is influence. And, and um, everyone thinks it's a tautology, but I'm like, no, if you don't have followers, you're not leading. Now, the question is, is how do yeah. you get followers? And, and that is essentially by setting the narrative such that that individual makes a choice that the direction that they're going to go is in your direction because it is beneficial to them. Um,
2: so. you just started talking about some exciting stuff.
1: Yes, right. It's it's you can't go to the executive and say, "Hey, we need to stop shipping bugs," uh, and and then uh, fall back to old tired stories around you know bugs are bad or customers shouldn't be testing you know principle based things. Um, If those principles aren't clearly aligned with a business goals or how the business wants to run uh you're gonna be you're gonna waste less time just banging your head against the wall uh literally yeah right because it's if you want to move forward you how you express the narrative and how you communicate it in a way that the person you're trying to influence cares is what matters yeah i can't wait to read the book
2: (laughs) And you know what, you just got me excited on something. Yeah, because there's Because there's this concept um, that we talk a lot about internally in our company, which is this idea of vision, which is that, you know, every company needs to have a vision of, of what they're doing, where they're going. And then oftentimes people are like, oh my goodness, I love the vision for this company. That's why I want to join, etc. But the truth is, I don't believe anyone cares about any company's vision whatsoever. What they care about is the vision for themselves. And the company is just a vehicle by which they plan to achieve that vision. And so if you understand what the vision and direction and motivation of the people that you're trying to influence is, and you can talk about things that help them understand that what you just said to them will help move them in the direction of their own personal vision, they're going to be so much more on board.
1: Yes, for sure. Completely. Yeah. It, it There's a... Um... There was a multiple books. Pink did one, and then there's a book that's one of my favorites called Influencer, where they say if you can target, yes, extrinsic motivation um, moves things along, but if you can target an intrinsic motivator, what personally drives that individual, it's 10 times more powerful. What's your next question? fully
0: agreed. I fully agreed. Hey, uh, I have a couple more to get to. Okay. Uh, And- (laughs) All surprises for Brent, of course. Um, you in the book you have a section that talks about growth metrics. With yeah. a shout out to another, our principles are pretty much entirely based or largely based on uh, the lean startup. And you have a call out to Eric Ries in there, uh, talking about vanity metrics, of course, and growth metrics, mm-hmm. and which ties again really strongly with our first principle: our priority is improving the business. So what's your advice to testers who work in a company without good growth metrics? How do they get started? What do they, what do, they do? What if you're, they read your book and you go, yeah, we need some of these growth metrics.
2: What do they do? You know, that's true. Because sometimes people are in situations where either their company isn't clear on the growth metric and they're not in a position to influence the, the core company's growth metric. But what we often say is even if your company doesn't have a clear metric for you to use. You can still work out what yours is and and use it as a basis of A, the work that you do, and B, how you drive communication. So, for example, we often say that there are three main types of growth metrics that exist inside a company. And, And for those that have no idea what a growth metric is, it's really just the idea of what is the one metric inside your business that will help grow the business moving forward. And oftentimes, it's not just we need more money, because that's not really a very valuable, useful growth metric for the whole business. It's usually where the customer derives value from your product. And so there are are three broad categories that we often talk about when we we think of growth metrics. The first one is attention-based growth metrics. So companies that are B2C, where it's like media or gaming or entertainment, they're often trying to grab people's attention. Uh, A core example of this would be a company like Facebook where their their core metric is the number of daily active users. So a lot of the work that their teams do is driven around how can we increase the number of daily active users. So while that team is testing, instead of them just testing and doing some triaging and, you know, I think this is critical, they're actually going, if we work on this problem, if we solve or or fix this bug or, or prioritize this, do we believe that will have a big impact on increasing the number of daily active users in this, um, in the product as a whole, or if you're just working on a subset of the product, whatever the, the, the core metric that you're trying to push off at that point. And by, by having that kind of focus, you end up attuning your work to what the business cares about, which is gonna be the improvement of that metric, which is gonna be like more users, et cetera. And you also start to have other people in the business start to understand the value that you can bring. Um, I often have arguments with people, and they're like, no, no, the people in the QA community shouldn't be focused on the core metric for the business. And I'm like, that's probably why you're struggling to communicate with the rest of the business because you're not, you don't care about the things that they care about. And this all comes back to what we were talking about before when we were talking about um, influence, et cetera. So, one of the bit of time, but the first the first growth metric that you might look at is an attention based metric. The the second type that you might look at is a, a transaction-based growth metric. So if you have an e-commerce website or a, a marketplace of some kind, there's often a transaction that has to happen. So a company like Airbnb, their growth metric is around the number of night books. Because when a, when someone books a night, it's the moment that the Person that owns that property gets value, and it's the time when the person who wants to be in that property gets a bit value. But, but there's also this whole section of, of growth metrics that is around productivity. When you say productivity, it's often for the, the B2B space. Because when we have B2B software, it's usually a workflow design or some kind of improvement in um, some sort of digital task that someone's trying to use that B2B software for. And I love when I looked at like what Slack were doing, where they had worked out that if they could get a a company to send two thousand messages, then they knew that it was something like ninety seven, ninety eight percent more likely to go on to actually upgrade onto their full plan. So everyone in their teams was so sort of focused around making sure that they hit that two thousand, they could work on the problems or solve the issues or do more testing around the things that would improve that 2,000 number. And so this whole idea of growth metric is really about making sure that you are focusing on activity that if you can change an effect, have the biggest impact to the rest of the business. And then when I talk about this, I sometimes have people argue and they say, well, but you shouldn't just focus on one metric. There's loads of metrics to focus on. And yes, of course, there are lots of other metrics for people to focus on. Um, but... If you're trying to have the biggest impact in your role, in the business that you're in, begin to think about what's going to drive our business and always have that at the back of your mind as you're making decisions, will only make you more valuable as a tester. And even if the stuff that you work on on a day-to-day basis, you haven't been able to find something that's going to move that needle incredibly well, but you're still talking in the business about this idea it lets the rest of the business know that you understand and care about driving the business forward. Whereas most times when people have conversations that I find when they're talking about testing, they keep it so um, technical and testing related that it becomes hard for others to um, to really engage. And so coming back to this whole idea of leading quality, it's really just about ensuring that what we're talking about and the, the, the messages that people hear from our our part of the business is we understand and care about the business, and we think that there are certain things that we might be able to do to help push and affect that. The more that anyone can have that narrative in their personal role or inside their department, the more value like people are going to find for the work that they do. And this is at least what what we believe from from what we've seen.
1: Yeah, I, I
0: Brent was nodding his head a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah. It, it. <laughs> I've said many of the many things that you've you've talked about. Uh, Dow Mao, daily active users divided by monthly active users. I use all the time. It's a fantastic measure of stickiness. Whether or not your uh, your customers uh, are are coming back and they're finding value in your thing, or are you just mm. or are you just having a you're able to constantly bring in new customers, but they don't stick around, right? Uh, yeah, morality, I look at
2: that right. What's that? Sorry, I was, just, I was just saying, when you look at that, you know, those are the most important questions that we need to be asking. And one of the things that I love about the testing community, is they always ask the incredible questions. Yes. And ensuring that they're asking some of these business context questions, which come down to the fundamentals, should we be building this sometimes? You know, the value that we can bring in our questioning is incredible. So it's just ensuring that we're using the skill sets we already have. but Ensuring that we're adding the business side to the conversation
1: that we have around the business. Yeah, it's it's one of the things. So so the old definition of quality, uh, or the, the traditional point of view of quality, is essentially bugs, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's it's what I now call code correctness. I, I won't I won't talk about bugs in code as a quality issue. Quality, in my view, uh, can only be defined by the the actual consumer of the product that you're building—that's—but um, mm. that, it can be measured by people within the product. It can be evaluated. It can be improved. I completely agree with you that one of the strengths in the test community is its systems thinking and its critical thinking skills. Yeah. And I do, in fact, dream of the day and, and where the community at large, I've, I've converted multiple test teams myself, but it, the community at large realizes that applying that skills towards the, the definition of quality that, that you are suggesting uh, is – I'm a data scientist by, by trade, so I'm making up numbers now, but I do believe it's an order of magnitude – Difference in the value proposition that these same individuals can use with their same skills. Yeah, it, it is. It is much more valuable to go in 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 this new direction. In this man's humble opinion. So, uh, I don't know if you're done with your questions, but I do want to. I, I do want to ask uh, Ron one of the common questions we get all the time on this. I'd love to hear your answer. So, Ron, that's all nice and good. But that's the PM's job. (laughs) I guess that was the question. (laughs) (laughs) What's your response to that? I can't
0: worry about the business. My job is to find bugs. That's someone else's responsibility. I abstain.
2: Wow. So I'm wondering... Um, My response to that is is actually just good luck. (laughs) Good good luck for your long-term career prospects.
1: Ah, so he doesn't have a better answer than we do. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so no, you know, I do, I do, I do have some thoughts, right? Oh, okay. um, so I was I was sitting down with a with a senior exec the other day, and we were talking about um, defining roles versus gray area. And oftentimes, people are like, oh, you know, I really, I just feel like we need to define my role a bit more. You know, I feel like it needs to be clearer." what I'm doing and where I'm, like how, where I'm going and uh, she, she, she said to me, she was like, look, here's the thing. If I work with someone and they are so stringent on, I will only do the things that pertain to my role, then I know I've got a problem with that person. Because in life, in business, there's always new things happening, there's always changes that happen. So if you're not comfortable with growth, you probably shouldn't be working in the company. and. It is the grey where you actually get to provide the biggest amount of advantage. And so this question of, hey, that is not my responsibility to look at what we're doing in this business, I, I think it, it's everyone's responsibility. I would much rather be in a company where every single person, down to, from the CEO down to the janitor, is going, that doesn't look right. I should probably raise that. If you don't have that mentality in your business or you're not a person that has that mentality, there is probably somebody out there who could do your same role and add that additional value. And the business that you're in would probably be promoting them faster and be having them do even more interesting things because they're gonna be trying to make sure that person's mind is attuned and they're gonna just work with them harder. You know, I don't I, I hate working with people that don't that aren't looking at their role and then asking themselves about that role in context of the whole business. You know, even when I work with developers and new developers, I would much rather work with a developer who is asking critical questions about where we're going as a business than someone that just agrees to code the thing that I've told them to go. Because there is, no one has all of the context and knowledge in their mind. It's this collective knowledge, these cross-functional teams that has the most value. Um, so if, if someone actually began saying that to me, I think I'd begin a rant of them on how much value really they truly providing and where do they think they're liking going. But yeah, yeah maybe no. maybe I don't have a good answer.
1: No, no, no. So that one is more aligned. One of the things, you, you went a different direction, uh, but one I still agree with, is um, one of the things that I've I've seen lately is a rise in the number of companies making an explicit shift away from, uh, particularly in the tech world, away from specialist roles. Um, because the, the need for a specialist is uh, it, it's sort of the Moore's law of software development or, or personnel in, in the software world. Right, uh, you hire a deep database expert and then realize, oh, our product is now going in a new direction where we don't require a database. If that's all that guy can do, uh, you, know, you got a problem, right? And so there's yep. definitely a move towards uh, what's known as a versatilist or a T-shaped person. So people who are deeply knowledgeable in two to three areas and are adaptable and i'm at, i'm now at a point when someone i will probe them on two or three questions and that if i determine no this guy's closed minded and is content being a specialist then i just go okay i'm i'm done with the conversation right please come back to me when when you realize you actually need me and not don't want to just argue because some people <laughs> exactly. some people don't want to be don't want to be helped. That's 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 my
2: conclusion. Yeah. So true. Yep. So
0: true. Uh, one last question. I think we all have a hard stop coming up here, but in reading your book and then in our conversations, uh, you you saw like we did that your book aligned with a few of the modern testing principles. And believe it or yeah. not, these principles have been controversial to some and some principles more controversial than others one I wanted to bring up was you said that your book aligned with our fifth principle which believe it or not has been controversial just a few thoughts on the customer we we believe the customer is the only one who can judge quality is is the customer is king principle which we fully believe but believe it or not we have had rather severe pushback from some people in the test community on this principle. I'm just kind of curious on on your thoughts on on how your thoughts align with uh, the customer being the only one who can evaluate quality.
2: Okay, there we go. So <laughs> when I'm I'm actually I'm not one who actually sits and argues with, with people who are adamant that they're right. Um, because it's not worth the energy, it's not worth the time. When it comes to this whole idea of influence, one thing that I've personally learned is if someone categorically does not want to change or want to be influenced, there is nothing that I can say that's gonna help them. I would much rather work with someone that is ready to hear an idea. And yes, they may have questions around it or things they don't agree, but still have taken the time to understand what had been said. So usually in cases where people are like, outright arguing some ideas, I, I I just don't have the time i'd rather sit and talk to someone who is on the task and needs a bit of context to help them move forward because i think that's how we make a bigger change and then by that point you have enough people that means that the person who could who wouldn't listen could no longer could not listen but um on the idea of um the customer being the um the, the main person with jones quality i i i believe this so wholeheartedly I, I often think about the idea of um, customer personas that are created by marketing and product teams, And, you know, know, companies would create these personas like, you know, Erin Enterprise who works at an Enterprise and she does this. And, and these personas are awesome for the product and the, sorry, for the product and marketing team, for them to generalize something. But the truth is when we actually start to look at quality, there are an, a quite an infinite number of personas because every single person who picks up that application or who who logs onto that application to use it, they expect it to work perfectly for them in their conditions. Which means in my mind, there isn't just a, a small two or three personas that we have to deal with in our company. There's actually loads of them and we call them local personas because every single device, every single location All the different permutations become unique personas that we have to end up looking at. And then once again, coming back to this whole idea, if we're really going to drive value for our company, you can start to to look at your personas and go, okay, so out of our customer base that we have right now, what are the locations or devices or usage patterns that we are seeing where we should actually focus our testing to make sure the people we care about the most, we can have the biggest impact on. And that's in the case when you're trying to look at your existing customers. But oftentimes, and this is all about thinking about something from a business perspective, but when you look at quality, oftentimes the customers that you want in the future are not like your existing customers. They might not be on the same devices, they might not be in the same locations. So you actually now need to test differently. You need to think about testing from a different perspective because you're now dealing with new personas that you're not currently looking at. And so I, I look at this whole thing in the same way. The, the manufacturing industry went. There was a time in the manufacturing industry where they spent all of their time just focused on optimizing the production flow. And then after a couple of years, total quality management movement came along and they were like, guys, I think we should be caring about how these products work for our customers. And people were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> a stupid idea. And then over time, people were like, wow, you know, if we build... Products that a customer actually wants to use, we can sell more. This is insane, that's and I almost crazy. feel like we, as an industry, going into that, the same that's market. crazy
1: talk. Crazy talk, customers. Yeah, <laughs> right. And, and I feel actually,
2: like we're
1: on same your your manufacturing paradigm is is spot on. Like we still hear it today, right? The single most important thing is that we make sure that our devs' times are are efficiently utilized. Right. And and, uh, then you find out, Okay, they're not they're not producing at at fast rates. And and even then, there's no idea of what uh, what value is of the thing that they produce. Right. Great. You have a machine that produces code like crazy that no one uses. Congrats.
2: Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And the reason why I know it's following a similar trend is because every single methodology that we use inside software development right now has its roots in the manufacturing process. All of the Kaizen Lee manufacturing, oh, let's look at DevOps, let's look at Agile. All of these come from manufacturing processes. The same, like I, I say history repeats itself. We're going through the exact same evolution. I know in 10 years time, people are going to be like, well, of course. We need to make sure the quality is defined by the customer. What else would you do? But hey, it takes time for people to change and adjust their thinking. Now, if you spend 50 years of your life with one paradigm, it is hard naturally to have a new paradigm. But yeah. over time, the groundswell happens and change happens.
1: We got to go. When does your book come out? And so Ron's book is Leading
2: Quality. It comes out when? So it comes out the beginning of August, so actually just about a month away.
1: Okay, and where can our three mm-hmm. listeners buy it?
2: So your listeners can go to amazon.com or .co.uk or .whatever your URL is in your local location. And um, you can you can order it there. You can also go to leadingqualitybook.com and um, you can request a free chapter. And actually, I think if you sign up now, in the first week of the book being released, we give the Kindle version away for free as part of our own promotion to just make sure that people understand these ideas. You know, people just need to hear the stories and have the new reference point about what they can do to lead quality. And I, I honestly believe I'm going to spend uh, a large part of my life, as well as my co founder, just preaching these messages about how do we lead quality. And I honestly believe in 10 years' time, people will be listening to this podcast just being like, wow, those guys, those guys predicted the future. Yes,
0: it's a great book. I've read it. Uh, Ron Cummings, John, the book again is called Leading Quality. I'll put some links to it in the show notes. Thank you very much for taking uh, some time out of your day to be uh, record with us today, and uh, we no will uh, look forward to see the rereading the book, Brent, to reading it, and to the three people who listen to our podcast, reading it and uh, getting the word out. Thank you, Ron.
2: Awesome. Thank you. Bye bye.
0: All right. See you.